0: This is 169 Projects. I'm Michael Tutton. I'm insatiably curious and excited about finding great work done in digital signage and visual communications. This podcast is designed to dig into some of those projects, find out what they're all about, and how they came together. That might be a big experiential job, a massive video wall, projection mapping, or a cool one-to-one interactive project. Each episode will get into the thinking behind a project and how it came together by talking to the people behind them. Just like the Mothership Podcast 16.9, this one's available online, or you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or using your favorite podcast listening app. The Queensland University of Technology, QUT as you'll hear it called, hosts an amazing digital interactive learning space featuring 27-foot-tall projections, 48-screen multi-touch interactive panels, and motion tracking technology. Called The Cube, its purpose is to engage and inspire the next generation of thinkers and doers and provide an immersive and participatory experience for everyone to enjoy. The Cube enables people to discover, visualize, and contribute to research projects and explore big questions of the 21st century. The content is produced in-house by a dedicated team of eight and draws in students, researchers, and artists from all over the world. They're creating content on a real-world scale, allowing citizen scientists, as the public is called, to experience real project scenarios and explore some of the challenges being tackled at universities with hands-on and interactive workshops. On this episode, we're speaking with Gavin Winter, who is the manager of the visualization and e-research team called VISOR at the Institute for Future Environments at QUT. Gavin was a project manager for the CUBE during its design, engineering and implementation and maintains a key role in the strategic planning of the CUBE and QUT's ongoing technology research and development initiatives. He has some insight into this unique space and some advice about how to deal with networks in a large university setting. Thanks for joining the podcast, Gavin. Why don't you tell us about the Cube and and what it looks like as you stand in front of it?
1: Sure. Well, the Cube is, uh, or has been, the world's largest digital interactive learning environment. It is the largest, or we determine it that way because of its, well, first of all its surface area, but also its quite unique uh, immersive nature and interactivity. The Cube is not necessarily shaped like a Cube, but it does have six surfaces and the major surface is at least 16 metres wide by 9 metres high. So it's a very cinematic projected system, but we have at at user height the multi-taction touch panel product, and we have 48 of those all around the cube walls. So we're able to present really high-impact, large-scale content, but it's also deeply interactive. And because of the nature of the technology, It's actually a very seamless uh, pixel space, which means the the touch panels sit next to each other much like a ultra narrow bezel video wall, but it can take unlimited touches and can see markers and use pens and all sorts of things. So it's an incredibly featured space and it's uh, unique in the sense that it is inside a university, but it's open seven days a week to the public. We run artist residency programs. We have uh, school programs and we have corporate programs. So it's a very, very broad user base we have. And even in the technology today, it's still uh, a flagship uh, project uh, globally, I would say.
0: It looks amazing. The images and videos I've seen and the content looks amazing. But what is it and what do you do when you're there? Look, the
1: the whole purpose of the Cube is about, it's an outreach uh, installation It's not about providing a tool to our students or even our staff and researchers. It's about promoting science and technology and engineering disciplines to young people, and that's young school students in right down to early um, primary school or junior school, right up to early uh, university uh, course students. The, The point of the thing is to Create a, a beacon to our campus, uh, but also to the city, uh, showing what's going on in the science and technology research and, and development in QUT, but also in other parts of government and industry, and really to inspire people. Uh, you know that we've got uh, projects like our virtual reef, which you, we uh, listeners will probably know. the The Great Barrier Reef is a major draw card to our country, but also the, the state locally for us. We have the, the new piece of work called Dino Zoo. And, you know, these hugely um, photorealistic and beautifully animated creatures are stomping across this massive wall. And, and it's a really high impact effect that it has on people. And we want to have little kids come in and just remember that they came to QUT and saw the cube and it could set them on a path to a whole new, new place that they wouldn't have ever gone. So we're really looking at leveraging the technology. Obviously, it's got to be interactive. You've got to be able to participate with people. It's not a personal experience. It's got to be, you know, someone next to you. You could be chipping away with a simulated archaeological dig or you could be looking at, you know, uh, some, some fish that are swimming on, on the reef, but you can have a conversation with somebody next to you. So it's about participation and, and really just a way of, Yeah, being inspired and and being inside a university environment too, the the effect of that is, well, they go, well, hang on, this is what university is like now. You know, this is a whole other uh, scene from what I would have assumed the university to be like.
0: But the content is more than just kind of touch things. There's an advantage to being a part of the university and what that provides in terms of the depth of the content. Am I correct?
1: Absolutely. You know, in my role at the moment – we're focused on looking at the large scale and high resolution technology to uh, explore uh, ecosystem modeling and understanding uh, you know, natural resource management, uh, natural disasters. We're doing work in some biosecurity right now. So we have experts as any university does that are that are really focused on facing major challenges that, that the planet's facing uh, and using that technology to explain to people who aren't experts just how important things are or uh, how they can participate and uh, make change and and participate in change as well so the yeah you're quite right the university location means that uh, we now have a facility that is is an outlet or a communication uh, mechanism to a very broad sector of the public
0: Tell me about the content when I'm there and I touch it. What do I see that's deeper than just regular touch content?
1: It depends on the piece of work. Um, you know, at the moment, uh, and then in fact, the inaugural content was much more basic, so it was very point and click. So, for instance, uh, the the virtual reef, we have a, a section of reef with many, many species, and you can go up to the panel and create like a, a as you might, you know, in a pond, swish your hand and, and the fish will be attracted to that, but then you can point on a fish and it, it stops in time and then the, the information is revealed and you can inspect the, what is a factor 3D model, so you can move that in space and have a look around. So that's very traditional. But the dinosaurs, for instance, it's a little different. There's more interactive gameplay there, so you can be identifying footprints of certain creatures, which is a little bit more point and click. But then we have the, the digging uh, game, which requires the, the user to, to uh, almost gesture and, and pick away dirt from around a, a fossil or, or a skeleton, a bone. Um, beyond that though, we, we've installed the laser tracking for the floor that enables the, the system to detect people in the, in the space so that the content can react to that. And in the DinoZoo context, they're actually uh, responsive based on uh, an estimation of uh, the person's height so you might have a, a, a raptor or a other creature that preys on certain size prey <laughs> and uh, it can respond to to that. And the kids really love that. The, the, the head will tilt on the dinosaur as the per- and, and track them as they walk along the floor. So it's not just uh, a touch screen; It's, it's a, a sensed environment. We have a piece of work that also took audio off the embedded, uh, at the moment they're an embedded Kinect tracker, so the audio was taken and based on certain frequencies of the conversations taking place, the content would respond. You can also, you know, hold objects and drag them across the wall, which that's an eight to 10 metre long surface at times. So that's actually a very physical way of, of interacting with content rather than a, what is traditionally a panel that you stand in front of and click through a catalogue of content. This is much more physical and you, you are definitely moving about the space more often.
0: What's driving the content creation? Is it we have this technology, so let's come up with a way to use it? Or is somebody saying, you know, it would be cool if we could do this and only there was technology to do it, Which chicken or egg? Look,
1: it's a bit of both. Um, And and in terms of background, we've got in this, the building that I'm occupying, the Science and Engineering Centre, which on the ground floor we have the Cube, I've counted just recently about 16 to 18 people involved in something to do with what can be shown on the cube. So we've got the the cube team. So they have the mandate to create the public facing high end uh, engagement content. There's my group, which is, and that's eight people. There's my group, which is about another eight people who are, research and development, and all about leveraging the technology for industry and government. Then we have other people who are focused on the research and the human-computer interaction aspects to what the technology does. Now, amongst all of that, there's all these ideas, there's all this potential. So the, the key thing, though, is to have, in terms of its public facing and its deliverables, mm-hmm. sort of what the Cube is actually for, there's a curatorial framework that suggests, well, content needs to be obviously engaging for as broad an audience as possible, but primarily focused on STEM education. And in Australia, we have um, the national curriculum, which uh, is, is always growing, but there's always uh, units such as, um, say, geography or history and other things that have a very structured syllabus and the content aligns to that syllabus. So a teacher can come here and conduct a class and tick the box on all their, their uh, requirements of uh, learning on whatever grade level and then leave leave the cube and have have done that. So there's a very purpose-driven thing there. Now, in terms of ideas for that kind of content, there's pitching processes from teacher groups. Uh, We have open days where local content developers or just interested people come in and and pitch an idea, and and they're assessed and basically shortlisted, and then they go through a process of uh, assessment. And then that that cube team, the, the primary team, will actually develop that project Next to that, though, is the likes of, of my group where we might have a contract with a government department or, or maybe a collaborative project with some uh, industry and we'll know what the cube can do and we know what challenges or problems that those organisations need to solve and then we can pick together, well, okay, there's the capacity for the technology, there's the content idea and we'll work out a design. Then there's the other group, the researchers and such who They want to know, uh, okay, well, this is a very unique setting and it is truly unique in in the sense that you're standing up to, I think, six or seven metres back or you could be right up close to the panel and the content needs to be designed for that. You need the near and middle and far kind of modes where you might spectate or look at the cinematic nature of the content, but then you've got to be able to walk up and do something as well. And they've they've done some research on that. And even beyond that, uh, some of our other... Uh, academic staff and faculty have assessed is the Cuban ac- an effective learning environment? You know, we're doing all this work around uh, content aligned to curriculum, but is that effective? So there's a very, you know, uh, academic and, and and theory-driven approach to this. But at the end of the day, the the main hero stuff, Dino Zoo, Virtual Reef, the chemistry wall, they are pitched, they are, you know, the concepts worked up, and our, in fact, our vice chancellor. So basically, the uh, president of the university will choose. Yes, we'll do that one this time, and then they'll take the next eight months to produce it. It's a very mixed bag, but at the end of the day, when you're showing, you know, a few thousand kids a month a piece of work, then there is a level of and, and, a, and a process there to work through to 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 get the green light, so to speak.
0: It sounds like there's a lot going on there. How's that all managed? Yeah, look, the we have forty eight.
1: Touch panels and I last count about 16 odd projectors. And for every, there's one PC per two touch panels. So there's on one wall, the main wall, there's about 12 computers running that. Now there's huge amounts of switching equipment. We'd use, um, when we built and installed the cube, we used the uh, HD based T uh, system, which was very new back in sort of 2012, 2013, and, and AMX as, as the vendor of choice there for us. And that's all managed very conventionally. You know, there's there's the um, matrix switching commands and all the other audio um, controls done through the, the AMX platform. But the key thing that we do for orchestrating, or I call it orchestrating the content, is we have a tool that we, we actually call just the Daemon tool. It's a, a little application that runs on every computer and we're able to send commands to that application to, to launch the, the binary or whatever um, application file with its particular settings based on where it is in the wall. So if you look at uh, something like the Reef, it is just a massive uh, or a, a, an online game where each computer is a player and they have a view of a certain scene. And then when objects move between certain players' viewports, then those objects track through the multi-user server. So it's pretty pretty straightforward there. But in terms of getting a pixel perfect synchronization and and the right settings and things, we've got to be able to control the PC on a software level, uh, and it does rely heavily on all the locally switched IP network. We're lucky that just above the cube, uh, about, I think, the longest uh, run is about 50 metres, there's a a data centre which is dedicated to that system, and it's full of all the AV equipment, uh, all the PCs, and all the other um, requirements, uh, all fed locally, so we're not relying on you know, servers in the cloud or anything like that. Everything is actually running at very local and and very high speed. So it does it does work for us that way.
0: So how are you managing data and internet connections? Yeah, they, look,
1: that's a, a an interesting aspect to the cube, and and your listeners would appreciate uh, that. You know, any large organisation and especially universities, the approach to network security and and managing internet access uh, is can be pretty stringent. But we knew very early on that our content will need to access the internet, chiefly because we were using uh, things like uh, Google Maps and Bing Maps and such, uh, and we weren't going to host those locally. So what we did, we created a network environment that was able to preserve all of the responsiveness and, and low latency requirements of the touch system, but also provide network access and a, and a level of security to the system. I've, I've worked for the university uh, off and on through over the years and I'm, I'm lucky to have a pretty good relationship with our IT security um, department. And so I was very clear to the team as we were doing or developing this solution we needed buy-in from that security team early so they knew what we were on about and that they were gonna help us and participate with us to, to achieve it. We were able to present a concept map of the cube and, and the network requirements. And uh, you know we, we are not network engineers, but we were very focused on the application requirements and, and the user experience. And when we met with them, they said, sure, you can do can do what you plan to do. And we're then going to provide you with this, this and this. And it turned out we had a full internet uh, bypass. So there's no need to, to have usernames or passwords. There's a whole network segment that can reach the internet without any issues. And in turn, we have a, an internal VPN. So in the university, you have to log into a, a firewall to get access to any of the cube assets. So that for them meant that and you know, it's, uh, people try things here, universities are all about that. So when you might have students trying to, to tinker with what the Cube's doing, you, you don't want that. So uh, there is a level of protection there. And that's worked really well for now nearly, well over four years since the Cube was commissioned. So every day the internet's accessed and people uh, can view it with an assurance that uh, you know, it's protected, but also highly featured and available from internet services.
0: Who supports all of this? Is it do you have internal people that do it, or you have contractors?
1: In terms of support every day, and, and I sort of usually say just keeping the lights on, the, the Cube team that I described earlier has the content developers, but there's also the uh, the primary AV uh, technician, uh, and there's also a systems administrator. So those two work very close together on just keeping everything humming and, you know, obviously the software updates and certain configuration changes here and there. But then, luckily, like the university, as we all know, we have very um, robust IT services that centrally manage things. So there'll be the network engineers, there'll be the data centre management teams, obviously IT security I discussed earlier. Uh, There's... um, In terms of other services we might use, which things like virtual servers or other things, there's whole teams that can provision those for us. So there's a a very broad capability of the university to to back the Cube, but at the end of the day, there's two people that are responsible for keeping the system running every day.
0: So you mentioned a number of people there that were working on this. How many people work full-time dedicated to the Cube?
1: There's eight eight people who are full-time dedicated to the
0: Cube, yeah. And what type of roles do they have?
1: The roles uh, are best sort of described as a, a game studio there's the obviously there's a management layer and a, a production management layer um, and then we've got the user experience and and game designer we have the 3d modeler an artist there's uh, two programmers i'm gonna I'll lose count of what i say but uh essentially you've got a creative team and, and obviously the programming team, and then the operations and management team, and it's about eight eight people. But at times, depending on the production requirements, they will contract in uh, freelance or short short contracts for specific art pro, um, artwork. But essentially, a lot of the, all the programming and the game design remains in house, and the production
0: management remains in house. Can you describe the workflow once a project is given the go ahead?
1: Yes. Yeah, so once a project gets the green light. The, the team essentially uh, go ahead and provide, um, commence the, the concept development work or, or embellish the concepts uh, more fully. They'll start the pre visualizations and, and artwork. But the key thing is once you once you get the green light, um, you must engage the the right people to understand the learning requirements and the curriculum alignment requirements. And QUT actually have a, a teacher in residence that probably in, in terms of proportion, probably 30% uh, aligned to and committed to the cube. And then that person provides the, the right backing to say, okay, well, if you're going to do a robotics piece of work, then here is the kinds of things that teachers will need to accomplish. And then that will inform the game design process. And then it goes from there. And it, it's very... Um, uh, agile, and it's an Agile development approach, uh, there's uh, constant reviews and testing and uh, user testing that occur. But at the end of the day too, once once you get the front end done and you know what needs to be achieved, uh, then the team does need to to get down and do it. So they, they will focus on the programming and the, the 3D asset design, and, and usually you won't see or hear from them for a, for a number of weeks. Until one day you're you down at the cube and and you're looking at the wall and there's a a new piece of work they're reviewing and you start to see it evolve in in, in that sense. I would say it's a there's a lot there's very high expectations for the work we show and so the the, the care and attention given to the to you know the graphics and the, and the artwork and obviously the the interactive programming they're very very careful with that and so that means it does take a bit longer to do, do the, the larger projects but the outcomes are very make it make that all worthwhile
0: what's the favorite project of yours that you guys have done on the cube for me uh,
1: back in 2014 we had the g20 meetings hosted by brisbane and we were able to create a project called the cube globe which was a spatial data or digital earth based bit of work and for us that was something that brought together a lot of different stakeholders from from our local government state government uh, and others on being able to leverage the cube for its scale and interactivity but then things like the open source uh, digital earth systems and we use uh, cesium at the moment to, to bring people a story about well okay queensland as a, as a place to do business as a place to come and holiday or learn uh, we're able to use the, the earth and, and overlay Data sets, which go well beyond what you might be familiar with, two D mapping and such. Today, we did a lot of you know nice flying, glowing lines, and all sorts of uh, interactive charts and things. And for me, that was a real, um, well, key moment in, in the fact that, well, okay, this system and the reason it's here, this is showing all of those things that, uh, and its effectiveness. And we've had that project now, well well 2014 and then into 15 it was focused on the g20 experience but that's now taken to many other places in terms of we use it for explain to people the management of drinking water and, and the water infrastructure uh, looking at how does drought impacts queensland and, and other parts of the country and we're, we're actually going to develop it even further to help with you know farmers or more regional businesses understand the threats of uh, pests or certain viruses that might threaten the certain crops. So it's, it's, a, it's a project that for me proved that the cube can really do this stuff, uh, but it also means that now there's a legacy that we've built on and, and we're making and creating change much further beyond just uh, our little building here.
0: Is each project able to be reskinned and essentially become a template or are they completely unique and standalone?
1: Uh, look, most of the projects are standalone. That said, they are designed in terms of, say, the graphical assets and such to can be used elsewhere. So I'll use the, the reef as an example. The virtual reef was actually made in the Torque um, engine. But all the assets in there and all of the... Uh, you know, there's some networking code and stuff was sort of designed, well, we need to be able to reuse this. We, if we solve a problem in a content project, and let's say another one is the dinosaurs with the laser tracking, then the code and the and the um, design approaches there can be ported to other instances. And we, we don't want to keep solving the same problems. Um, you know, there could be some web code or some, let's even just down to some JavaScript on Synchronising touch points or some sort of interactivity between those computers running web browsers. That code and those modules should be able to be used by others in you know, other projects. There's always a fairly open mind on that. Uh, it is always a tension, though, on a trade-off. Well, you know, we can't make it too generic because it takes too long, or there's you know there's there's other constraints. But you know, the teams involved uh, are very they have great depth of experience and and. I would say um, wisdom in terms of knowing when those tension points arise and then making the choices. The focus for me, though, at the moment, being an R&D group, uh, we do actually prioritise code reuse and and having our academics being able to take solutions that were created to adapt to their needs. Whereas the the cube operations and the the primary content team, they may prioritise the production quality and the, and the interactive experience of a project beyond that generic approach to things.
0: So the queue's been up and running for a while. Have you encountered any major issues or disasters over the years? Uh oh, look,
1: hmm, it's hard to say. You know, for me, when we engineered the, the the systems and we worked with our architects and stuff to create the layout. There was a lot of work to do to convince people that this is going to work, that the, you know, the user experience will be delivered on. And there was a point where we actually switched all on, I think it was about October 2012, switched it all on. And I've, I was coming out of the lift just uh, onto the, the ground floor there. And when I saw it all turned on, I sort of had a, a goosebump moments where it actually just worked. You know, the, the projectors were stitched and the, the panels are on and everything was aligned and it was all great. And really, it's, it's been that way ever since. I, you know, the, I can't think of any moment that there's been a sort of a catastrophic issue that meant that we had to, re, you know, redo or revise the approach. Now, that said, too, we don't mess with it that much either. So it's, it's running Windows 7 still at the moment. So the Windows 10 upgrade will, will take some time to plan. We have replaced the projectors from the uh, HD lamp-based to the new 4K laser-based. That did present an issue where the projector placement was different, and and the and the lens uh, and the throw on the um, on the wall had actually significantly narrowed the overlay or the blend margin for those things. So it was a touch and go moment there where we thought, oh, gee, can can we even do this? But that was resolved with some trickery and um, some some very competent welders and things to make new brackets and stuff. So, but in terms of public facing downtime and any form of sort of show-stopping issues we haven't we've been very lucky we haven't had that occur you know the people involved you know deeply committed to to ensuring it works at all times you know the team were here uh i think at least till 2 a.m i think it was a monday night on, on getting something ready urgently for a vip to come through so they 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 want to make it work they want to make it look as best as possible at all times
0: you mentioned earlier that people were interested in the learnings that were going on are you guys documenting and sharing those learnings
1: Indeed. Uh, yeah. The, and that's, again, in the nature of the university, a, a lot of that is is published research in, or in, in journals and, and things. So uh, any any um, search through the ePrint system and things like that will reveal various papers written by those academics. We've always aspired to, to be a bit more connected to the, the local development community in terms of blogging, what we're doing and how we're doing it and that sort of thing. And that's always, unfortunately, comes secondary to our the pressures on us to develop works to deadlines and such. But there is a work from my group online, and there will and there's uh, things like the um, the Cube website and such do publish very informal articles on on what they're working on and how they're doing it. So the dialogue is there, and also even internally we. We have a little workshop program I call uh, Reaching the Cube and we'll have first year undergrad students sitting next to professors all learning about the uh, way to get TOIO to talk to your web page and create touch events and things and they love that because it means that they are more empowered to think of well how will I present my research work or if I wanted to do a poster that would go on the cube rather than just being a static image I could actually make this dynamic and so there's an internal training and skill development that we aspire to, to do. And we, we don't run those nearly as often as we'd like to. They're probably every probably three or four months. Uh, but uh, it's something that we've constantly wanted to do. And, you know, it's it's still a successful approach. And, you know, as anyone likes to, we want to aspire to to be better at it.
0: So with the learnings that you've gathered, what message would you have for those that are creating content for digital screens?
1: Ah. Uh, I think uh, the, the key thing for for us is we don't compromise on the user experience or the impact because of what the technology might be perceived to do or not able to do. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's got to be driven by the content and it's got to be at the very start, you know, you've got to be very aspirational and, and ambitious on what you want to achieve. And then when it comes time to think about, well, how would you actually implement this particular Mechanism interact with it. Can the panel do it? And then you negotiate down. That that would be my thing. I think uh, in the past we've had approaches where they'll go, oh no, the the projectors will never do that, or you'll never get the frame rate, or whatever. It's like, well, let's just assume we will, because you can always upgrade a graphics card, or you could always make certain adjustments. Let's just forward ahead and, and deliver what we'd like to do, without having the somewhat harsh realities of the technology limitations which usually are just assumptions that haven't been proven. Um, In fact, that reminds me, the the design phase and the technical sort of engineering phase for the the project before anything was even built, our our approach was, you know, we're not gonna make any technology choices or any assumptions without actually having evidence of the performance uh, it can deliver. And like anybody or any... um, any discipline, you're going to have preferred manufacturers or preferred software systems and that sort of thing. They were always put together and evaluated on the on the performance requirements and the quality requirements, and then the choices have been made. So, uh, and that was a few surprises that came out of that too um, on software configuration and that sort of thing. But it meant that everyone was looking at the evidence and then making choices. So before you can say, oh, when you'd never be able to make a dinosaur move like that across that many computers all at once, well. Well, we're going to. We're going to do that, and and this is how we're going to do it.
0: So what came first, the idea for the content and the learning or the massive space that had to be filled?
1: Definitely the content and the learning. Our vice chancellor identified in the building design a a space that should have something uh, iconic. Now, that that typically could have been a piece of art or something, but uh, we knew straight away that it should be a digital interactive system. And the lead professor on the projects had always wanted to make a life-size digital reef. So if we could build this, a wall of that 16 by nine metres, even more, uh, with a reef on it, how do we do that? And that's where we went to. Uh, the, the bones of the building was determined by the architect already, but there was a lot of unknowns, I mean, it was a void. So what we put in there could have been anything. And we went through iteration after iteration of, of uh, structural design. It actually started as a cylinder. Uh, so like a in the round aquarium style thing, uh, but that was proven infeasible to even construct. So then we went through, there was an internal cave like environment with an external digital uh, uh, display there was all sorts of things we went, and as we went along and as the rest of the building sort of evolved around it, we could determine that although we wanted to create this massive cube-like structure that you know, could house a humpback whale, the, the way the crowd moved or the way um, the use of the teaching spaces around the cube and even some of the more communal spaces, they were were too compromised by this enormous object. So that's when we started to think, well, hang on, we want six surfaces, but if we push the corner in and make it more of a wing shape, does that actually open up the space some more? And so it went through like that, and that was quite a long period, actually. I think uh, early 2011, uh, that would have sort of, about March 2011, that would have concluded, and then we are able to go, okay, this many panels, this many projectors could fit. In this certain configuration, and we went from there. We were really lucky to have uh, a, a studio environment that was right next to the construction site. We could we could create sections of the wall at any one time and test the the clash between the panel and the projection surface, or the synchronization of the software, or which speaker will work best. And then we could leap over the fence and actually go to where it was being built and then measure and and see how things worked. So it was a dream in that sense. We had beautiful access to the site and you know uh access to a lot of uh experts not only from the the university but the contractors as well
0: thanks for taking the time to talk to us today gavin i look forward to uh hopefully making it down there one day and checking it out for myself
1: oh absolute pleasure thank you
0: That's all for this episode of 16.9 Projects. If you've seen a project in the wild and said to yourself, now that's cool, I'd love to hear about it and maybe feature it on an upcoming episode. You can reach me at michael at crowncontent.ca. This podcast is a companion to the 169 podcast, which talks to smart people doing interesting things in this business. It's also tied in with 16 which is the website to read if you really want to learn about the digital signage industry. You'll find that at 16-9.net. This podcast is produced by me in Toronto and is a product of Vertical Media Consulting Group, the massive media empire my buddy Dave Haynes runs out of his house down the highway in Burlington, Ontario. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Tutton.